Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Loeb. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Loeb is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, well, you can grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, and in case you use one of our pew Bibles, we will be on page 872. And while you're finding your place, a while back I was listening to the radio as I was driving home from the office uh, when I heard what, what I thought was a, an odd commercial. And it's not an exact quote, but uh, the, in essence it said, don't let the IRS trick you into thinking that you have to pay all of your back taxes. In other words, if, if through some uh, means of negligence or, or outright dishonesty you have a lot of back taxes that you rightly owe, don't allow the IRS to intimidate you into thinking that you actually have to pay that. Call us and we can settle on your behalf for a much lower uh, amount. Now, in full disclosure, I don't know anything about that program. It could be a complete scam or it could be on the up and up. I, I don't know. But the wording that they used just made it sound unethical. Kind of like the, the lawyer whose, whose billboard advertisement is, just because you did it doesn't mean you're guilty. Right? We, we hear things like that, and it, it frustrates us because it, it makes it seem unfair to all of the rest of us who, who try to play by the rules. But at the same time, ha having said that, whatever we may think about the ins and outs of our legal system with all of its various loopholes, the reality is that spiritually speaking... None of us wants to face true justice on our own, and reaching a settlement with our account is our only hope for salvation. And this morning, Jesus is going to emphasize the importance of understanding this situation and responding to the gospel while there is still time. And so we're in Luke chapter 12, and we're going to pick up beginning in verse 54. It says, he also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And so last week, Jesus called the disciples to live faithfully in light of his second coming and the future final judgment. And he promised that those who fulfill their responsibilities will be rewarded, and he warned that those who prove to be disloyal will be punished. And now as we pick up the story again here in verse 54, Jesus turns his attention back to the crowds, and he continues to emphasize the significance of understanding and responding to what God is doing among them. In this first section, he challenges the people about the imbalance between their physical and spiritual perception. And he points out that, that while they're, they're able to understand what the weather will be like based on what's happening around them, they are failing to recognize who he is based on what's happening around them. And so living in, in their region of the Middle East, the people understand that if they see a cloud rising in the west off the Mediterranean Sea, and that means a rainstorm is developing. 
And they know that if, if a south wind blows, and that's going to bring scorching heat from the desert along with it. Right? These people can see physical weather signs and understand their significance. But for whatever reason, they are, they are missing the deeper and much more significant spiritual signs and significance of what God is doing among them through Jesus. And in verse 56, he chastises them. You hypocrites! You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And so think about it for a moment. Right? Everything God has promised to do for his people throughout the Old Testament is happening right in front of them in the person and work of Jesus. Right? It should be obvious through everything that he is saying and doing that the time of fulfillment has finally come. But the crowd has failed to embrace him. And as we've seen, some are even actively opposing him. And so Jesus says, you can connect the dots about the weather, which is, which is good enough, it, that's helpful, not really necessary for life. But as you look for the Messiah, which is at the very heart of your national and religious identity, here is a man who was born in Bethlehem of Davidic ancestry. Someone who had John the Baptist point to him. Someone who has cast out demons and healed the sick and given sight to the blind and even raised the dead back to life. And yet you say, yeah, I'm not really sure what to think about that one. What more could possibly done, be done to make it any clearer? And then in verses 57 through 59, Jesus urges the people to make the right move in light of their situation as he refers to the prosecution of debt. You see, in the ancient world, if you were in debt financially to another person and you were unable to pay the debt back and they decided to file a claim against you, then they would take you to court. And if the judge uh, ruled in favor of the creditor, then you would be thrown in prison until such a time as you had paid the money back, which usually occurred whenever your friends and family had, had scraped together enough money to get you out because you couldn't earn money while you were in prison. And so Jesus emphasizes the importance of doing everything you can to come to an arrangement or, or a settlement with your creditor before it goes to court. Because once judgment has been passed and a sentence has been pronounced, then there's nothing else that you'll be able to do. Now, I trust that you already realize that Jesus is not really concerned that all of the people in this crowd are in financial debt and, and in danger of going to prison. Right? He's not giving them legal advice here. He's using this as an illustration to make a much larger theological point. Right? In the bigger picture, Jesus has been discussing the imminent arrival of the kingdom of God and the need for everyone to be prepared for it. And in that sense, we are all in trouble because our sin puts us into a moral debt before God. Right? Our transgressions have racked up a bill that we can never pay. In fact, we continue to add to it every single day. And God will function as the judge, jury, and executioner for our rebellion. And so Jesus' point is that just as a financial debtor should seek to reach a settlement with their creditor before it gets to court, we need to seek to settle our sin account with God before the day of judgment. Because on the day of judgment, it will be too late. So we're going to talk more about how we do that in just a moment. But first... Jesus is going to continue teaching as we move into chapter 13. It says, There were some present at that very time 
who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so as we move into chapter 13, Luke tells us about a group of people in this crowd who informed Jesus about a troubling situation that has recently occurred in Jerusalem. A man named Pontius Pilate, who was the governor of the region of Judea, has mingled the blood of a group of Galileans with their sacrifices. Now, Pilate, as many of you already know, is going to have a very significant role to play towards the end of this story. But Luke introduces us to him here in chapter 13 as having executed a group of people from Galilee. Now, we don't know anything else about this particular situation. It's not referred to anywhere else in the Bible in it or, or in any other uh, historical literature. But we know that, that Pilate hated the Jewish people, and we know that he had a tendency to be violent. And so whatever happened, and, and for whatever reason it happened, Pilate appears to have had this group of Galileans put to death as they were offering sacrifices. Now, in response, Jesus asks the crowd in verse 2, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? And then in verse 4, he refers to another tragic incident involving the Tower of Siloam, which fell and killed 18 people. And again, no other record of this incident has survived throughout history. Uh, but either people were in the tower, or the tower fell on them, or perhaps some combination of both. But altogether, 18 people died in this tragic accident. And so similar, he, he asks about the 18 victims. Do you think they were worse offenders than everybody else in Jerusalem? Now, as Jesus asks the question, we have to understand that a, a sizable portion, if not the majority of the people in this crowd, would answer yes. I think they were worse people. It was commonly believed in the ancient world, even among the Jews, that, that blessing followed and, and came to people who deserved it, and disaster followed and came to people who deserved it. Right, we see this in the way that Job's friends respond to his suffering. Right, they tell him, you know, you must have done something to deserve this. We see it in the disciples' response to the blind man in John chapter 9. They asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, so that he was born like this? And we hear similar things today. I've, I've heard stuff like this many times in my own life, and, and probably many of you had as well. I remember when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, that there were people who said that, that that's God's judgment against all the immorality in that city. And then you hear about the, the wildfires out in California, and people will say, well, well, that's because God's trying to get these people's attention. Well, then five years ago, this week actually, Hurricane Harvey put seven feet of water in this room. So what does that mean about us? Well, I mean, it doesn't mean anything. Well, exactly. It doesn't mean anything. All right? The truth is that blessings and suffering don't distinguish between good people and bad people, Right, that's not biblical, that's karma. Right? That's Hinduism. Right, we don't believe that some impersonal force, 
somehow manages to balance the world between good and evil based on what we do, the scriptures declare that God sovereignly rules over every aspect of creation and that in all things, the good, the bad, and the ugly, he is working out his perfect plans throughout human history. And in God's providence, sometimes wicked people are blessed, sometimes God's people suffer. But when you really get down to it, we we realize that none of us, there's nobody who is righteous on their own, and all of us ultimately deserve to suffer from disaster. And this is exactly Jesus' point when he insists, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And again, it's not saying that that Jesus thinks that Pilate's going to kill all of these people, or or that a tower is going to fall on all of them. His point is that apart from repenting of their sin and turning to him as the Messiah, a most bitter fate awaits each of them in God's judgment. Now this statement gets to the very heart of Jesus' mission. He says that unless each one of us repents of our sin, we will all perish. Probably all of us can remember from John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is here speaking to these people as the very one who has come to save them from God's judgment, the judgment that they deserve even as they resist him as their savior. As we sang about a moment ago, it is amazing grace that God would do this, and how much more so that Jesus is actually willing to argue with people in order to convince them to embrace him, to turn to him. Jesus calls us to repent. Now, it's been a while since we talked specifically about repentance, and so I'll just remind you that repentance is a change of mind that inevitably leads to a change of behavior. Repentance is a change of mind that inevitably leads to a change of behavior. Repentance is coming to see things from God's perspective, and then modifying, adjusting our lives to be in line with his will. And in this particular case, repentance looks like recognizing Jesus for who he is and submitting to him in faith and obedience. And Jesus calls these people, and us by extension, to place our hope for salvation in him. And he's going to give a final warning as we pick up one last time, beginning in verse 6. It says, and he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. And so picking up again in verse 6, Jesus gives another parable to emphasize the urgency of responding to him. In this parable, a man has a vineyard in the midst of, uh, uh, has a fig tree in the midst of his vineyard, and for three years it has failed to produce fruit. Every year the man comes and he looks for figs, and there are none. It's starting to seem like a bad tree. And so he decides to to chop the tree down. He reasons that if it's not going to produce fruit, then there's no reason for it to sit there and continue using up the water and nutrients that his other plants could be using instead. 
But as he tells the vine dresser or the gardener to chop the tree down, the vine dresser asks for the opportunity to continue cultivating the tree for one more year. He seems to think that it's possible that the tree can still be salvaged. He says that if, if the tree goes on to bear fruit, then that'll be great. But if it doesn't, after another year, then they'll chop it down. Now, it would be helpful for us to know that the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Micah, Hosea, and Joel all use the image of a fig tree in illustrations of God's judgment against Israel. And so as Jesus' listeners hear him talking about this proverbial fig tree, they know and understand that he's talking about them. For generations now, the Jews have been unfaithful to the Lord. But despite their ongoing rebellion, God has sent them the Messiah in Jesus. But what they do with Jesus is going to decide everything. Faith that leads to the fruit of discipleship will salvage their relationship with God, but rejection will lead to total judgment. God has been long-suffering with his people over the centuries. There have been ups and downs, there have been successes and failures, but it's all going to come down to this. From now on, it's going to be Jesus or nothing else. Jesus or judgment. And you'll notice that the parable doesn't have an ending. We may ask, does the tree go on to bear fruit or does it end up being chopped down? And as usual, that's because the ending depends on what the people do with the parable. Will those listening to Jesus respond with faith that leads to repentance and obedience? Or will they dig their heels in against him and experience God's judgment? And to find that out, we're going to have to keep reading the story, which we'll do when we come back again next week. But in our passage this morning, Jesus emphasizes the importance of understanding what God is doing through him and responding to the gospel while there is still time. And as we reflect on this passage for our own lives, we should ask ourselves the same questions that Jesus poses uh, to his his Jewish listeners in the first century. Jesus isn't standing here right in front of us this morning, but through his word, he confronts us in the very same ways that he did with his original hearers. And so, for starters, we should ask ourselves, what is my plan for Judgment Day? What is my plan for Judgment Day? As we've already established, our sin deserves to be punished. But the good news is that Jesus has offered to settle our account by canceling our debt through his death on the cross. But if we refuse to submit ourselves to him and we come to the final judgment of without the righteousness that he offers, then we will experience God's eternal judgment. And so have you settled your account with God by trusting in what Jesus has done to save you through his life, death, and resurrection. If not, and you have questions about Jesus or the gospel, I would love nothing more than to talk with you more about that. Secondly, we should ask, how's my spiritual perception? The truth is that our hearts and minds can be just as dull today as the ancient Jews were in the first century. We all have a tendency to give our attention to to worldly things at the expense of spiritual things. The reality is that many of us can can rattle off every statistic known to man about our favorite sports team, but our knowledge of God's word is minimal. 
We can talk all day long about our opinions on politics and current events, but the gospel rarely comes up in our conversations. We can discipline ourselves to follow the most restrictive diet and exercise plans, but pursuing obedience to Jesus isn't quite as important. We need to take care that we don't miss out on what God is doing around us because we allow our spiritual perception to become dull. Or we could ask this, as as we look around at all of the craziness and tragedy in our world today, of which there is plenty, do we get caught up in analyzing the the whys and the the what's of the situation, thinking about how this could have been avoided or, or what needs to be done about it? Or do we take the opportunity instead to be reminded of the brevity and uncertainty of life and make sure that our relationship with the Lord, and frankly our relationships with other people for that matter, are where they need to be? Ancient Israel neglected the blessings and the responsibilities that the Lord gave to them. Will we do the same thing? Will we, individually and as a church, bear fruit in response to what God has done for us through Jesus? Or will we neglect that, allow ourselves to become distracted by all the alternative agendas and priorities that the world pushes on us? This morning I pray that we will have eyes to see what God has done for us through Jesus, that we will have hearts that respond in faith in him, and that we will have hands and feet that exercise obedience in response. Let's pray together.